Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here. And this week we're going to be chatting branding, logos and social proof with David Breyer. Before we get into the chat, I do want to give a big shout out to FreshBooks who have been amazing by sponsoring this podcast. FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software that helps you to create invoices and manage your profits and expenses ready for the tax season. You can try it free for 30 days, no credit card required, just by visiting freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about us section. This week, we are chatting with branding guru, David Breyer. I discovered David several years ago when I came across a video of his called What is Branding? It's an animated clip voiced over by David, which makes you realize just how magic and inspiring branding really can be and what such an incredible industry we work in. After that, we got chatting and over the years, he's been kind enough to give me advice when I've asked him. So for that, David, if you're listening, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Now, David is a true master of branding, having won over 330 international industry awards. And he's also been featured on high profile publications such as Forbes, Adweek and Business Insider, for example. In this interview, we chat about how he started out, branding, logo design, and how he makes use of social proof to attract clients, which is really interesting. We also speak about his new book, Brand Intervention, which I just got my hands on a copy and I can't wait to start reading. So to kick off the interview, we discuss why branding matters. We're all con- consumers of one thing or another. And so meaning that whether they're, whether we're shopping for something for our business or shopping something for personal usage or whatever, we have lots and lots and lots of choices. Branding is the tool. It is the thing that helps you and I differentiate and distinguish one product from another. That's the importance of branding. If there was no branding, basically everything would be like, okay, Here's 75 brands of water. Pick the one you want. And then I, as the consumer, now have to spend the time looking and researching and doing all that kind of stuff. That's the job of branding is to make it easy for me to establish what is the right car for me, the right water for me, the right running sneakers, the right computer, the right smartphone, etc. Okay, so when a client comes to you, um, could you talk through the, the steps that you take to actually create or transform a brand identity for them? Yes. There's two basic phases, and there, and there are parts within each phase. There, the first phase is to conduct what I call a messaging audit. In other words, I look at my client's brand, their brand story, their message, their distinguishing features and benefits. And then I, at the same time, I look at all of the others that are out there in that space because every brand will have competitors. So that's a messaging audit. The objective of that is to walk away with an outcome where it's very clear what is unique about my client's product. And that's the important thing. What is distinct? What can, what really can we become the hero of? What can we become unique 
in how we do it, in the way we do it, in why we do it, etc. That forms the foundation for the next part, which is basically doing what I call a visual audit. And again, that's looking at my client's brand and looking at the competitors of my client's brand and really seeing what are, what are the common things. Because in each of these exercises, we're looking at one thing, which is what are the common cliches that are found in any industry? And I've yet to find any industry that does not have an enormous amount of cliches, meaning common things that the companies in that space are saying, are doing, the images that they're choosing, the colors that they're choosing, the typographic styles, the design styles. So I'm looking for the commonalities because by isolating those commonalities, first in message and then in visual presentation, I'm then able to find and navigate the way to come up with a unique story and then also unique visual representation so they really stand apart because branding, as you and I know from previous discussions, Mm -hmm. branding comes down to a four-word definition that I've basically brought it down to. It is the art of differentiation. So say you've um, created an an identity um, for the client. Do you have any clever process for actually testing that so that you know that it's going to work? It depends on how complicated. Sometimes it's really obvious. And sometimes, sometimes it's kind of going on a bit of a, you, it, it's what I was able to extrapolate, but, uh, but there are times when it's a little complicated, like it's a very specialized audience. I mean, recently, just as an example, a, a client in an industry that I never would have sought out was in the industry where they create dental crowns made out of zirconia. Now, I would never have thought that out as a business, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an industry. I was like, I, I don't wake up in the morning going, or, I, or at the beginning of my career, I didn't say, you know, one day I am going to really, I'm going to land a zirconia crown company. And I really want to have that as part of my rep, my portfolio and repertoire of work that I've done. It just wasn't there. But they sought me out and it was very interesting. Uh, it was very unique, but it was also kind of problematic because as I looked at it, they were like, what we really do is a commodity. Right. And now the, the commodity is the, is the antithesis of creating a brand because creating a brand, I mean, we're in the business of creating brands. As a result, we're in the business of creating and defining differences visually, thematically, etc. And in this particular space, um, I found instead of us talking about creating zirconia crowns, I found the actual unique story was that we engineer predictability. Now that changes their entire story because they're providing predictability for the places that manufacture those crowns and the dentists. Now that's a very different story than saying we manufacture zirconia crowns because that's a commodity. So that's just an example of, of that kind of approach and, and what one needs to walk away with. And from there, everything else starts to unfold very organically. Now, I, I know that you've got over um, 30 years of experience. You've had um, quite, quite a career and you, you've basically become the expert on branding. So I'm really curious, where did you start out? Like, where did it all begin? Well, I'm a native New Yorker. And even though now I'm from the Midwest, I still, I still think of myself as a uh, native New Yorker. I'll, I born in 
born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens, then a little bit on Long Island, and then I moved to Manhattan. And the thing there was that I basically went because I was taking some additional classes at School of Visual Arts in New York City. And I went to the play, I would go to the placement office and I would look at freelance jobs. I wasn't interested in working at a particular agency or design firm because I didn't really find any that I actually, um, nothing that lit me up, nothing that inspired me or, or, or really got me to go, wow, until there's only the one person, which you and I have talked about, Herb Lubalin. Because it was literally in, in the last semester of college that a magazine that he had put out for, the, for a type foundry, uh, I had seen, and it was actually on newspaper. It wasn't very high production value, but it was stunningly designed. No detail was left to, to chance. No, no column, no, no headline, nothing. Everything was nuanced, stunningly, gorgeously. And I was shocked. I'd never seen design like that. So my goal was to actually, if there was going to be any one place I was going to work, it was going to be at his studio. And I did actually manage to get an interview in his studio. And wow. I almost got a position. I almost, I almost got a position. But unfortunately, just right after that, that interview where they, he was looking at actually having me come on, um, his health had taken a, a gone south. And it, it, it was unfortunate. The timing was unfortunate because he was such a genius and he, he tended to bring out the genius in others. So I really went out on my own uh, from the beginning and I, that's, that was the foundation. And I would, I did some different freelance jo jobs and gigs for uh, everything from Estee Lauder to Revlon to Jim Henson to New York times magazine to Rolling Stone magazine, all of these various different types of things as well as some little startups. And I started to refine and hone my skills. And I really, a lot of it, even though I did take some classes at School of Visual Arts from some of the masters, Ed Bangat, who was a legendary type designer, we became friends. And also Roger Ferreter, who was an earlier partner of Herb LeBallon, he had uh, provided some classes and I met with him, uh, did, did a class with him and I really enjoyed that. And so that was how I basically got into the industry. That's amazing. So when you first started out, you was able to get some really big clients. Um, are you able to talk through how you, how you was able to land those so early on? Well, I, it was probably a combination of blind ambition and having no idea of how high I was reaching. I just, I just, you know, I did laugh. I think I was, I think I was sort of comfortably numb to be honest with you. Um, and so I had even, and I have copies of these still in my office and very few, very few people know this. Some people who have been in the industry as long as myself, but I even had a publication called graphic relief that was that I did as a collaborative thing. And it came out quarterly and we came out with four of them and they won awards and they were amazing and they were large. They're like about 12 by 18 and beautifully designed, very witty, very it, that helped get me into certain circles. Um, so I think that I was hungry enough and oblivious enough. I think it was a combination of hunger and obliviousness. So did those names contact you or did you reach out to them? I would reach out to the, I would reach out to them and I would say, I'd love to come in and show you my portfolio. Um, and that was a time again, now that, again, cultures changed. 
This is pre-internet, right? So when you would need, when you wanted to introduce yourself to somebody, you would call them up, you would give it your best pitch on the phone and, and as much uh, charisma and uh, engagement and enthusiasm as you could muster uh, to get in and get an appointment. That was what you had to do. Unless you had an agent or, or an artist's rep firm, and I didn't like the artist's rep firms because their percentages were way out of line. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they would get their percentages. So as a result, it didn't make economic sense for me. So it was me. And so I would call up and, you know, I'd get an appointment and I, I, I would love to hear if I didn't never recorded them, but I would have loved to have heard recorded and listened back to some of those earlier conversations. I probably would cringe if I listened to them today. I have no idea how or what I did other than the factor that I felt that I was really good and that I would add something to, I, I wanted to work with them. And so I would arrange an appointment that they'd like what they would see. And I landed projects. That's amazing. So I'm just really curious, like, you know, how um, technology has changed a lot um, since those times. How would you approach that now? How would you approach that differently for, for people that are, you know, the, the age you was at that, that time? How would they go about landing clients like that? Is it, is it possible now? Or? Well, I think, I think that one today has to be one, the bar is sufficiently raised. So in other words, for example, anybody and anybody and everybody can have a page on Behance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody can have online portfolios. Anybody can have a YouTube channel. This, not the other. Okay. Well, since everybody can have that, how does one do it so that one actually gets noticed? That's the trick. And so that's what I would do is I would say basically figure out how to, how to provide more value and the way that I've done it, because I've obviously navigated from how I used to do it in the beginning of my career to today. And what I do is I'll write articles. I will create videos. For example, I mean, one of the ways that I've uh, gotten a fair amount of, of recognition I would write a script about a video about a night, something that I was personally passionate about. That's what inspired the what is branding video, which now has 352,000 views on YouTube. I have another one that when I wrote, when I was writing posts for fast company magazine, I decided, you know, there's a, there's something about innovation that I don't think has ever been talked about. And so I took a different approach on innovation. I wrote the script and I worked with an animator, collaborated with an animator. And that got, I don't know, between Vimeo and my own YouTube channel, that's probably got about 150,000 views. And so, and so the thing is, is now do I get money for that? No, I do those as a gesture of giving back. So I'm giving back uh, by providing things that, and, and I've had companies from Dow Chemical to large corporations around the world who said, Hey, we have an upcoming convention. May we please show this? And so it, it's interesting to see just doing those things in terms of what can I provide that's not being provided. And that's what I do with regard to the YouTube videos. When it comes to articles, I write articles in a way that I don't, I see some design firms, a lot of them actually, they just show uh, pictures of work recently done. Mm-hmm. That to me is very, um, 
self-serving and very useless. I am definitely of the philosophy that whatever I write and share has to be from the viewpoint of the reader, the viewer, and be of, and, and really appeal to their sensibilities and their values. So I write those things based on what's the valuable takeaway that somebody reading this could have. If someone owns a brand or has a company where they're managing a brand or many brands, what are the takeaways? What are the insights? And I've always had that, a good ability in that area to kind of break things down. And so I leverage that because I always look at this. Here's, here's one other thing. And, I, and this is, I think, very important that anybody who's in the design field or, in, or is a brander of any sort can use. I realized if I write a blog, I'm one more blog. So what, so I asked myself, what can I do that is different? What can I do? Cause you know, I, there are readers that there are people that I like, there are authors that I like that I find inspiring business leaders, thought leaders. Now I could either try and be also a thought leader but you know what? I also at the same time cannot forget, and I would not let myself ever forget, I can do things that they can't. Many of these thought leaders, they might be able to say some great inspiring things, and I could also say some great inspiring things. But you know what? They can't sit down and design anything. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't know a font, a serif font from a sans serif font. They wouldn't know what colors worked well together. They wouldn't know about geometry. They wouldn't know about shapes and form and rhythm, and all the things that go into design. So my goal was had, making sure that I always incorporated my unique talents into the pieces so that not only was it good content, but that visually I was also providing more than any of these other thought leaders would be able to provide because you know what? They actually don't have that talent, and I do. So I need to be, I need to be, I need to own that talent. I need to be responsible for that talent. And, and I am the only one who's going to take responsibility for exporting that talent to the world. People are not going to get it by telepathy or by, by, uh, you know, psychic uh, calling up a little palm reader and say, Hey, where should I look for, for graphic inspiration? <laughs> I want to kind of expand on from that because I know that you've been in, uh, featured in, in sites like Forbes and New York times, like on your website, you have all these, um, brands across the top of your uh, website and it, it you know it obviously immediately look, makes you look very authoritative and um, just having the the association with that so I'm curious to know from you firstly has that been intentional and um, secondly if if it has been do you have any advice for people out there who who would like to get you know their their content featured on sites like that so that they can also try and make themselves look like they're very authoritative to um, clients that might find them absolutely so yes as far as so is it intentional absolutely there's something called social proof are you familiar with the term social proof yeah yeah I am so I mean just for just in case any of your listeners aren't i mean social proof social proof is literally anything from if you go to amazon.com and you see something has five stars that's social proof if um you know if oprah winfrey says this book is amazing that's social proof if you have any sort of sort of third party endorsement provides social proof so um again I never, ever, ever, and I would never suggest anybody do this. I never suggest uh, that anyone ever take anything for granted. Do not assume 
that because you were once in a publication that others will know because, oh, that publication has amazing distribution, so therefore everyone will know. Guaranteed, very few will know because there's such noise out there today. You know, there's a gazillion, I forget the numbers. The numbers are astronomical as far as how many tweets are done daily and and how many, there was even actually something I, I recently saw in one minute on the internet, the amount of how many blog posts are posted, how many tweets are tweeted, how many Instagram posts are uploaded, how many YouTube uh, videos are viewed or watched or uploaded. It's The numbers are astronomical. So one has to really own their own reputation. And so, yes, it's very deliberate. I would not expect everyone to know that I had written for Fast Company, so I'm going to own that. I wouldn't expect everyone to know that I've been uh, featured in Adweek, so I'm going to own that. So, I mean, so with all of those things, so with between Adweek and Fast Company and Forbes and Inc. Um, and Huffington Post and all the various publications, it's like, yeah, I definitely, you know, there's a way to do it. I mean, I think that there's an obnoxious way to do it. I think that there are um, uh, more tasteful ways to do it. I tried to do it in a way that was somewhat tasteful. And sometimes I think that uh, one can err on the side of being so tasteful that one actually um, loses their effectiveness, um, meaning that they, they're trying to, well, they don't want to be overly obvious. Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes you might have to just lean a little bit on that obvious side, um, a little bit. It, you kind of have to experiment and find your sweet spot. But I would say, so that's one factor, one part of the answer to the question. The other part to the question is I've approached these publications. You know, I'm like, I remember, you know, I initially approached Fast Company and said, you know, I know that I have, I've read some of the articles in Fast Company. Some of them I found interesting. Others I found uh, really lacking. And I knew that I could absolutely deliver a better product. So part of it is that confidence of if you know you can offer something better, it's part of one's responsibility to own that and say, hey, you know what? I know that I can actually provide something better for your readers. I can actually provide better insights. I can provide, so, provide something that will be more, provide more usefulness and, um, and really then go in with that sort of like what I talked about in my early in my career is that somewhere between obliviousness and naive confidence and just go with it. <laughs> I just want to take a short break to give a shout out to FreshBooks who have been amazing by sponsoring this podcast. So FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software for creative professionals that's so straightforward to use. It will save you hours each week, giving you more time to be designing logos. You can easily create and send professional looking invoices, but don't worry, you can also add your own logo and color scheme too to make sure that your invoices reflect your brand. A feature I love about FreshBooks is that you can see when your clients have actually opened your invoice, so there's no more guessing. It will also send automated late payment reminders too, so you don't have to have any of those really awkward conversations. If you're listening now and you've not yet tried FreshBooks for yourself, now is the time to do it as they're offering you a free 30-day trial, no credit cards required. All you need to do to claim that is just to visit freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and be sure to enter logogeek in how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to that interview. 
So I'm curious to know more about how you're approaching the publications. Are you really just simply sending um, an email of some kind to say that you can do better or is there more to it than that? Well, there, well there, there's an art. You don't want to say, I know I can do better because that's obviously going to be alienating. So, I mean, the thing you would want to say is, the thing you'd want to say is along the lines of, hey, you know, I, I recently read this article and I found some of the points very, very interesting. Well, but what was interesting to me was that this particular point wasn't raised, which was one of the first questions I had had. I would love to provide your readers with some other insights to this kind of thing. Is that something of interest to you? You know, so in other words, you're, there's an art to how you present it. You want to be inclusive, not exclusive. Because if you're being exclusive, then you will alienate. So, you know, it's kind of like reaching out and reaching out and touching base and, and finding people with common goals. If you find someone, if you find a writer or a publication that shares um, a standard with you, such as, well, they don't, they don't like to settle for the norm. They don't like to compromise this, that, the other. They say, hey, you know, I'm all about that. I'm, that's where I live. Then that would be a thing I would say. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. Now, I know that you're quite excited to speak about this, but you have a new book, Brand Intervention, uh, which I understand uh, has hit number one on Amazon's uh, hot new release list. Now, I've, I've read articles that this is unlike any other branding book. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's very true. I do have a certain degree of excitement with regard to this. Um, the, 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 the basic thing, the basic thing was this, there were a few different categories of books that I saw out there. There were ones that I called kind of coffee table books that really provided visual stuff with not much substance. So it was kind of like, okay, if you're visually inspired by this, great. And it didn't provide much content. Then there were other, then there was the other extreme where there was some books that were what I called highly academic, meaning that they were written by someone who was a, a, the, a theorist. But they really actually, you could tell that they really didn't have the practical everyday knowledge or they love to use marketing uh, and business jargon to sound important and authoritative, but it really wasn't practical. And then the last point was that I saw that there were um, books tended to have, let's say if you had a 300 page book, I normally found that there was about eight pages that actually had the real, real, real valuable stuff. And the other 292 pages were kind of like filler or expounding upon those eight pages of really good stuff. So that's 292 pages. Now, if I want to go on a treasure hunt, tell me I'm going on a treasure hunt and, I, and then I would consider it an adventure. But if you're telling me that you have a valuable book and you're giving me 300 pages to read and I only get value out of about eight pages, realistically, that to me was not a good model for a book. So I wanted to write a book that literally trimmed all the fat. It was the leanest book in terms of no fluff because I found, having done this for over three decades, there were the same points that I would go over and hammer home with every client. And it did not matter if the client was a a national or global brand, whether they had $100 million, $500 million, uh, in sales, or if they were a startup that had only, you know, whatever, a couple hundred thousand dollars in, to start their entire business from scratch. And they were X amount of money was going to the offices and X amount of money was going to payroll and X amount of money. And so you had a very small budget to start with. 
it didn't seem to matter, which was shocking to me. So I started to write down what are the things that I always go over, always, because I've been fortunate enough to have some incredible success with my clients. I had one client uh, that makes the chocolatier, one of the finest in America. I did a rebrand of their package. And when their package came out in, in their one boutique store, at the end of that first month, their sales literally tripled 300% increase from the same people. I took a, I took a city that I had branded and I rebranded the whole city. And in 12 months, they saw a 500% increase in the clients and actually the number of tourists that actually went through the city. Um, I took another skincare company and out of New York city, one of the premier skincare companies. And within uh, three months, we saw an 800% increase in new clients. And so I saw the results of these things. Those are just a few. There's, there's quite a, quite a handful. I even took one of my clients that I've had for about 25 years, six years ago, he had, he had sold a company, did very, very well selling the company, started a new company. And in five, after five days of retirement, he said that I can't stand retirement. He started a new company. So brand new startup, no sales. And in the last six years, he's gone from zero to now a $250 million uh, business with the brand, the new brand that I helped him create. So I looked at this and I was like, I wanted to have a book where there was no fluff. It was more like a, almost like a, having a conversation with me where I'm giving you the straight stuff. I am not wasting your time. And as a result, I even designed it so that it looked like that. So instead of having normal 12-point type, my type is 36-point type. It's large. And, you know, and, and at the same time, I also was fortunate enough because of my writing for Fast Company Damon John and I got to know each other. He actually had retweeted one of my articles and said it was the finest article on Shark Tank that had ever been written. And I was blown away. And of course, I retweeted it, reached out to him. We became buddies. And he's written the forward to my book, which really excited me. So the book, I'm super, super excited. The responses off of the... Um, off of the reviews, off of Amazon are amazing. And even Huffington Post said that it's a must-read book. So yeah, the response so far has been off the charts amazing. And that's the value of it is really giving back and knowing that I've really given, I can guarantee anybody reading this book, they will get, as, they will get the equivalent of a minimum of two years worth of college. Uh, they will learn more from, than from two years worth of college. Mm, sounds amazing. Like I've I've seen it. We um in the uh, uh Facebook community, we actually um, got David in to um show us it. And uh I know that you you've from from a marketing perspective, you've also got um coffee and chocolate and all these other bits and pieces, which is um I, I can't believe you you actually made the, the coffee for real. So I think that that's amazing. Yeah, well it's I'm known for saying that meeting expectations is a death sentence. Right. In other words, if, if if you and I went into a restaurant and we expected the food to be OK and the food was OK, that'd be pretty forgettable. We may never go there again. Mm, very true. Right. But if we went in there and we were like, you know, we expect the food to be OK. And not only was the food OK, but the hostess was really friendly, really nice, really engaging. The courses were well timed. 
Whenever the water got low, they always filled up the water quickly. Dessert was great, and and something something if something arrived maybe that wasn't particularly hot, they replaced it immediately. I would be inclined to go back there because they didn't just meet the expectation. So I really have this philosophy that what most people consider the finishing line, I actually consider the starting line. You know, it's kind of like taking your next breath is not a big goal. Not like, wow, I took my next breath. No, you better take your next breath. (laughs) So, so it's kind of like, so meeting expectations is, is, is not, not anything that I celebrate. So I always look at how do I raise the bar and I demand that of my clients and I demand that of myself. And so that's what I had to look at with regard to the book. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to generate excitement, what can I do that's not been done before? Yeah, you've certainly done that. I'm thinking of steering the conversation um, a little bit around uh, logos now, because we, we've spoken primarily around branding so far. So in your opinion, what makes a great logo? Well, obviously something that, something that helps really give a unique voice to that company, uh, where that is unmistakably them. Like, for example, anybody that's a follower of mine, they, they know that, that I'm an Apple fan. That I've loved, that I've loved uh, Apple's branding, you know, especially under Steve Jobs. Well, I find it interesting when you look at, you know, I look at Apple. I mean, and again, this is a little bit branding related, but it still uh, it touches upon the logo aspect. Um, Apple created a certain aesthetic that was uniquely Apple. Now you have Microsoft following that same thing. You have Google following that same aesthetic of clean, sans serif, and white space, and all this kind of stuff, and. Now, that's a, more about brand vocabulary, but still, even the cleanliness and the orderliness, all of that stuff is it, Apple set the stage, set, raised the bar, and others followed suit. So, you know, to me, a great logo is one that transcends, uh, transcends time, is meaningful. Um, the other day, when we talked about the you asked me about my favorite logos. I mean, one of them is mother and child from Herb LeBallon, which I've, which it says it, it doesn't matter what language you speak. And I was fortunate enough early on in my career, I did a logo for the New York city ballet and people have loved it. And they keep continue to love it because it has legs in it and it has, it has a cityscape and it, and it just, it, it's uniquely creates and conveys that culture. But what's interesting is that, People have said to me, it doesn't matter whether you speak English or not, you would know what that was. And to me, that's when a, that's when a logo is great. And it gives you a sense of the, that particular company, what its culture is about, what its personality is about. Um, and obviously, the criteria today has, to, has changed a bit where a logo has to work 64 pixels square. It has to now work on social media as well as working in larger applications. But to me, that's part of it is that what really, what works, what, what gives me a sense of, of, a un, of the uniqueness of that company? That's when a logo is successful in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So in terms of your um, process to create a, a logo or an identity, if you want to expand um, further into that, what process do you take in order to actually create a logo? Like where do you start? And then what, what are the steps that you take yourself? Well, I, well, for example, I do, I definitely do my first homework of looking at the competitive landscape because if my job is to give my client the unique voice, I have to be aware of what are the 
what are the other brands and their logos that are competing for that same bit of business? So that's the first thing, because I really want to know, because if everyone, if everyone, for example, is using uh, serif fonts and everybody's using blues and greens and this and that, the other blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, then I might, that's definitely going to have an impact on what I choose. I might say, you know what, I might, I might opt for an orange and I might go, I might do something that might be more of a mark than a word mark. I might, I might do a mark if nobody else is doing a mark. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a reactionary, but it's strategic. In other words, I'm aware that this is going to be seen with many other, against many other choices. How am I going to do the greatest job for me? So it's so part of it is is stripping away what what are not the candidates that I'm going to be looking at. Well, if I already know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be looking at it something maybe a little more modern or a little more minimal, minimalistic. That's going to help sort of narrow the field, so I can really focus on where I need to focus. Um, stylistically, I'm always keeping myself fresh. I'm always looking at what's being done. There are certain styles that are more or more ornate or more intricate, um, that might work in certain applications. Uh, there are ones that are more simplified to me. I mean, there, there's, there's what, there's one very well-known multidisciplinary international firm that I used to love. And now I find I actually yawn when I look at their work because their work is predictably boring. They're actually relying. I, 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 you can always tell when a firm is relying on their past achievements because their existing, their new and future work is, there's nothing fresh. There's nothing dynamic. There's nothing alive. And I always want to challenge myself and my clients to, to have something dynamic, alive, and that pushes into the future. It's got to push into the future. It's got to welcome the future. I, that's one of the things that I say in, in my book. It was one of, the, one of the little inspirations in the, in the book because I have these pages that are sort of these big posters in, within the, the, the brand intervention book. And one of them is a little bit like a, a little bit like a Magritte almost. And it says, your brand is the door to the future, a glimpse of tomorrow. And that's what I like brands to be. That's what I like a logo to be. Is this giving me a sense of what's possible? Is it giving me an aspiration? And so I use all the design bits and pieces to get there. That's a really inspiring way to look at it. Now, have you ever had the situation where a client's not liked your work? Yes. So how did you go about handling that situation? Well, good. So, the, so the first, the first thing is, is that that's why from your earlier question, when you said, "What's my, what's my sequence?" and I say, "Well, first I work out. First I do a message audit, and then I develop a message and develop the brand story, and then I do the design or visual audit, and then develop that." I share those discoveries in sequence with my client. The reason is, is because that way I'm building, I'm building something with them. I'm like. So if we look at the sequence of that, and this, this reduces that, well, I don't like it. I mean, you'll occasionally get that. But if you, but if you omit these steps that I've just outlined, you're going to get into the land of, I like this. I don't like this. Let me show my wife. Uh, let me show my cousin. Uh, let me show my dog. Oh, hold on. I have a neighbor who's also in, who's a, who's a, works in a big corporation. Let me see what they think. 
you get you get that kind of horrend. That's a nightmare of a, of a relationship. So it's one's job when doing this is to say, hey, here's what your competitors are doing. Here's what your competitors are saying. Here's how we can sound different in terms of our story. And, and if the client is along with you on that journey, they will then see, ah, we I now understand the journey. Otherwise, you're literally, they, they have nothing to gauge it against other than what they like, what they didn't like, maybe what they saw that morning, maybe a new podcast that they listened to last night. Now they have a new idea. I mean, literally, you, you're leaving it up to chance. And so one's job in doing this, one is helping to navigate and educate through this entire process. And when you do that, you will lessen the, well, I don't like that. You'll get more, yes, that makes sense because there will be an actual logic. It's like, because everyone else is talking about X, we are talking about Y. Now, and, and here's why we're talking about Y. This is the logic. This is, the, this is our passion. This is our philosophy. This is the, the reason that we came into existence. This is the problem that we're solving in the world. Good. Now, this, to, to, to get that message out there, here's what we need to do. Uh, as visually so that others will be able to see that our brand now aligns with that brand story. Otherwise, with, without that, you're literally coming in saying, Hey, I like this. Don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not a great, that's not a great foundation for presentation. Yeah, I think um, like you and uh, quite a few people that I've spoken to in the in the previous season has this same kind of funnel process where they are taking, um, you know, their client through a funnel essentially and taking them on that pathway so that when they do get to that final thing, it's quite likely to actually be uh, agreed. And I, I guess in the situation where they don't like what you've done, it's probably just a minor tweak or, you you know, like it's not going to take that much work to actually get to the point where it will be right for that story. So I think that's really good advice. Yeah. And the one other thing, the one other thing I, I will say, I am known for saying that committees are a death sentence. So do not get engaged in scenarios where you're basically... You have a, a, a committee of eight or 15 people. That's not realistic. It needs to be down to, to a couple of one or two people that you are serving who actually are ideally the owners of the company, because then you're serving people who actually are interested in what you're interested in from the standpoint of the goals. If you're serving those goals, otherwise you have someone that is likely Making decisions based on possibly career objectives, possibly um, possibly other other opportunities where might be political, or that maybe they're even second guessing and hoping that they really understand what their boss really wants. They hope cross their fingers, and that's not a good way to go about either. Mm. So, in the situations where you where you have got to that point where there has been a committee involved, have have you like bypassed the the committee and um, you know spoken to the owners of the company to avoid that, or have you fired off the client essentially? Um, I have. I, I'm very straightforward about the, this point on committees, and I've only basically run into one sort of committee situation in about the last twenty five years. Um, you know, and 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 it was literally. There were 40 stakeholders, 
40. That's a nightmare. Now, and the thing is, is I said, so I, so I pulled the executive director aside and I said, there will be no committee on this project. And she looked at me like I had probably, like I had three eyeballs. I said, what we're going to do, I said, I know that there are going to be, there's going to, there's four areas that are of interest. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to do my work. I will present it to you. And then you and I will present it to these four people. And we're not going to ask them, what do they think? That's the other thing that I never, I, I never will ever tell anybody. I said, if you ask, what do you think? Then you're just opening up the, the, the gates to hell because that could be anything. I say, if you're going to ask somebody a question, you can ask them, is there anything we missed? Will this communicate to our audience? Does this properly, properly represent our, our whatever to uh, prospects? You know, in other words, what's the specific thing? Would this appeal to, if this is a, this is a face cream, would this appeal to stated target audience? You know, is this going to stand out amongst these others, right? These are legitimate questions to say, what do you think is stupid? It is ill-informed. It is useless. And also in case I haven't made my point, dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it comes down to subjective opinions. Um, Everybody, when everybody's ask, got what one. do you think? And everyone's got an opinion. So it's, it's a silly question and uh, we need to basically never ask, what do you think? Right. Well, we're close to the end of the time. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Sure. Could you share your best uh, logo design tip with us? I would say with whatever design one is working on, provided that one is applied the various things that we've talked about in this podcast, my question would be, is the design that one is working on the, a design that they would be proud to be the last and final work that they have done? If they, if they happen to leave the office and they were run over by a truck, <laughs> and this was known as the last, what was the last thing he was working on? It was this. <laughs> I would be like, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, the thing is, is, you know, why not do, why not do greatness? So, I mean, it's kind of like, that's the thing that I look at is, okay, let's go for it. It's like, is this, is this great? Is this inspired? Is, is there a bit of a legacy with this that will leave others to go, wow. You know, I mean, if, if, if others see this and don't think I wasn't reaching high enough, in other words, it's inspired them to, to reach higher and a little bit further. To me, then one is left, one is left some of their brilliance uh, on, the, on the floor and that's not the right place for it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a good way to kind of elevate your skills. So it's good advice. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Um, really appreciate it and doing the live feed of, uh, um, as well. It's been um, uh, fantastic to spend uh, so much time with you. Thank you very much, David. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you. I mean, absolutely. I think you're doing a great job building the community and, and, and uh, really sharing all this information out with people. So you're, you're uh, sharing this with the community and, and helping to keep others inspired and informed is certainly commendable. So that's really well done to you. Thank you very much. Another epic interview, David, thank you so much for your time. So guys, if you want to learn more about David, all you need to do is just visit his website and you can find that at risingabovethenoise.com. 
Show notes for this episode can be found at logogeek.uk forward slash 2.2. So if you want to chat with myself, David, and over 2,700 other logo designers, you have to join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. And to find out, all you need to do is visit logogeek.uk forward slash community. Now, this group is really carefully moderated. I put a lot of time and effort into it, but it is totally free. Um, but just to make sure that uh, everyone in there is logo designers and the, the quality of the uh, members of the community are um, of a high standard, there are a couple of questions that I do ask. So... When you get to that page, just answer those questions briefly, you know, just briefly introduce yourself and then I'll let you in and, uh, you know, you'll be able to chat with so many other designers. You'll be able to learn from them, get feedback. It's a fantastic community and I'm really proud of how that's going. So if you're listening and you're part of that community, it means so much to me that you're in there and that you're um, interacting and engaging and, and, you know, just helping to make uh, such a, a, an incredible community uh, for logo designers. So guys, if you've really enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That always means so much to me. So thank you if you are able to do that. So guys, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and I'll see you next time.